was joking with Larry before the service that he did a that he gets to read the Hebrew phone book this morning, and he did a, he did a great job. So thank you, brother. You were the right man for the job. So this morning we come to Genesis 46. We're in the midst of a series through the life of Joseph, as Larry mentioned, and up until this point, the big question that's been hanging over the story is, is the, is the covenant family that God has chosen through which he's going to bring his blessing, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, is it going to survive? Is the family going to make it? Because there's obstacle after obstacle after ox obstacle that is revealed through the book of Genesis that seems to show that the family is not going to survive. If you remember, if you'll take your Bible and turn back to the beginning of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and this is right after the fall of man into sin, after God created the world and created man in his image and gave them a command to obey and they failed to do that. And we read, though, God's promise to his fallen children in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the following, I will put enmity between you and the woman, as he's speaking to the serpent now, and between your offspring, that's the offspring of the serpent, and her offspring, the offspring of the woman, Eve, he, talking about the serpent, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise, or he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this conflict that God prophesies, namely that there's going to be a woman that comes or a woman that gives birth to a son who's going to crush and undo what the serpent has done. So there's hope here in Genesis 3.15. And there's greater hope as the book of Genesis unfolds. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, where God calls a man named Abram and makes him an amazing promise. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. So that's a huge promise. And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's going to take this man and make him into a nation. Now go to Genesis 15. And God establishes that very covenant with him here. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what shall you give me? For I continue childless. Remember, you said I was going to be a nation. I don't even have a kid yet. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my, house, no, a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able and number the, to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now look down at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. 
So all that's happening in the story of Joseph was what God had promised to Joseph's great-grandfather. Okay, so you've got Abram and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, and now Joseph is one of the sons of Jacob. And God had told Joseph's great-grandfather long before Joseph was ever born, long before Jacob was ever born, that he would be made into a great nation, but that that, that, that nation that, would be made, that he would be made into would be exiled for 400 years, namely into Egypt, which we read about in the book of Exodus. So God had promised all of this before it ever happened, and now this is beginning to be fulfilled because they are moving into Egypt now, and they are becoming a nation. And that's why it's so critical when we read like a list of names in the Bible like we read in Genesis 46 to ask, why is that there? Why all of a sudden does the story kind of come to a screeching halt? I mean, wasn't it just two weeks ago we reached kind of the climax of the story, right? Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and there's this great reconciliation. And now all of a sudden he says, okay, go back and get your dad. And now you expect just the, 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 the pace to pick up when in fact it slows down. It slows down dramatically in Genesis 46 because we get this record of the family of Jacob. And we'll talk about why that record is there and why it's so important momentarily. But as I mentioned before, earlier, in, in the story of Joseph, we have this constant question over our minds of whether the covenant line, the, 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 the family of Abraham, is going to survive and it's going to recover from all these challenges it has faced. What are some of the challenges that this family has faced up to this point? Violence, separation, famine, and now exile. But Joseph's provision for his family and his reconciliation with his brothers resolve all of these problems, undoing the tensions that have existed in the Genesis story so far. This resolution, in turn, then trigger, triggers a return to a pattern that has been common to the book of Genesis so far. Now, in Genesis chapters 37 through 44, there's hardly a mention of God's name. I mean, Joseph mentions him from time to time, but God is largely at work behind the scenes. It, it's a radically different story in the way that Moses is telling a story from the way he's told it up to this point. I mean, what has marked the story of Genesis so far? God's direct activity, right? God's speaking creation into existence. God judging the world. God calling Abraham. God stopping Abraham from killing Isaac. God, God's involvement, God's voice, God's work has been dramatic. But then we get to Genesis 37, God speaking again, revealing dreams to Joseph, and all of a sudden it's like God goes silent, right? He just, brothers sell him into Egypt. They seem to get away with it. Joseph's situation goes from bad to worse. He ends up in prison, but then Pharaoh has some dreams, and Joseph gets out and ascends and serves in the time of the famine, and reconciles with his brothers and now at the beginning of Genesis 46 God starts speaking again he, 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 he goes back to what he was originally doing all along and, and why is that so incredible I think, it's, I think it's so neat to see what God is doing because we see it here this is the first point of the sermon we see revelation we see 
God revealing something to Jacob, speaking directly to Jacob. And we see him say, verse 3, I am God, the God of your father, Isaac. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Right? So that sounds very similar to the promise he made to his grandfather, Abraham. Same wording. He says, verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I'll also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. In other words, you're going to die with your son by your side. Now, Jacob at this point is around 130 years old. Not as old as Isaac and Abraham were, but old. And he, God reassures him that Joseph will be the one whom he will be beside as he dies. Now, this is the third and final appearance of God to Jacob in a dream. And notably, and I'm going to show you this in a moment, each time God reveals himself to Jacob in a dream, he reveals more of what he's doing. So let's look at the first time God speaks to Jacob back in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28, God speaks to Jacob in a dream for the first time. Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. And God says to him, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he's reiterating to him the promise he originally made to Abraham and that his offspring will be numerous. In fact, as numerous as the promise was made to his grandfather. And that the seed would be as the dust of the earth. Now, the second dream is in Genesis 35, two chapters before the dreams Joseph receives. Genesis chapter 35. And we read in verse 11, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. There's Genesis 1, 27 language. God is still committed to his purpose. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your body. Joseph was a king, right? That's one fulfillment of, of that truth. But a greater fulfillment is King Jesus. Nevertheless, we come to the third dream here in Genesis chapter 46, and God tells him a little bit more. He says in the first dream in Genesis 28 that there's gonna, he's going to have seed as the dust of the earth. And then in chapter 35, he says that a nation and a company of nations will come from you. However, unlike Genesis 28, where Jacob receives this alone, Genesis 35 concludes with a list of Jacob's descendants, the 12 sons of Israel. And now in Genesis chapter 46, we have an even greater expansion and application of that, where God says that he's going to make Jacob into a great nation, but this time the dream is followed by 20 verses listing not just the 12, but all of their descendants as well. In other words, God is keeping his promise. Don't be discouraged. That's the point of this. That's why the, 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 narr the narration almost comes to a screeching halt and gives this big list of Hebrew names. Why? Because God is fulfilling his promise to make them into a nation. That's why the number 70 is so significant. Because that, according to Genesis 10 in the Table of Nations, is what marks a nation. It's, it, it's beginning to now saying, 
This is, in a small micro way, this is the, the, the great nation that I am going to take into Egypt, and they're going to multiply into an even greater nation, and I'm going to bring them out in 400 years. So, the growth of this family of Abraham against all the potential problems that could have emerged, the family violence, the separation, the, the exile, the famine, all of that, God has used Joseph to preserve and overcome. From zero to 12 to now 70 reminds us that God's promise in Genesis 3.15 is not going to be stopped. No matter how many famines and conflicts and separations and assaults that Satan tries to throw his way. Because, be clear on this, behind all these family problems is Satan. Trying to stop and disrupt the family that God has chosen to bring about his promised son. And if God can't, and, and it's not like family conflict has been anything new to the way Satan operates, right? If he can divide families, I mean, what's the first attack from Genesis 3 into Genesis 4? Why, do, why in Genesis 4 do we have this family conflict of Cain and Abel? Because that's the way Satan's trying to work. Separate, divide, break apart. Because then the family can't go forward, God's promise can't go forward, God's son won't come. And God's not going to let that happen, no matter what problems lie in the path. Now, just a quick application here. You might think, this is, this is, a, this is a pretty significant call for an old man to make. Right? I mean, God comes to Jacob. He's an old man, really old. And, I mean, he should be, you know, on the golf course, metaphorically speaking. Not a lot of the golf courses in Canaan. But should be, you know, putting his feet up, relaxing, and playing out his last years. And then yet in this, these twilight years of his life where he's getting ready to go home to God, God calls him to make a radical sacrifice. And I have a word, an application for us older senior saints among us. You know, it's easy to think sometimes that Christianity it just gets easier as you get older. Following the Lord requires less of you. I would say it's just the opposite. Jacob is getting ready to do the hardest thing he's ever had to do, and he has to do it very late in life. He has to leave the promised land. He has to go and die in Egypt, all with faith in God's purpose, a purpose that he won't live to see fulfilled. Jacob's journey reminds us that we never get to an age where we no longer have to trust God and where we have no more lessons to learn and no more obstacles to overcome and no more fears to face, and no more sins to kill, and no more journeys to take. Vody Bauckham says, Serving God is not a young man's game, where senior saints sit on the sidelines reminiscing about the good old days. This is a full participation sport, where as long as there's blood coursing through veins and air in our lungs, we must stand at the ready. Now, how's Jacob able to make this journey? He's not necessarily even going to be able to make it on his own two feet. He's going to have to be carried, right? That's what the text says. 
Verse 5, the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, into Egypt. He's not going to be able to stand. He's going to have to get loaded into the chariot and escorted there and probably monitored throughout the trip so that he doesn't die. He's very near death. But it's hope from the promise and presence of God that sustains him. Right? Look, look at verse 4. I myself will go down with you. I, I'm in the chariot with you, Jacob. I'm there with you. Don't be afraid. And this is a comfort to us, right? No matter where we, what age we are. That no matter what stage of life we're in or what challenges we face or obstacles we're, we're looking at, that God will go with us. And he will walk beside of us. So that's the first point. That's revelation. Second, resettlement. In verses 5 through 27, again, we have the record of the sons of Jacob. And that, that is given because they're now being resettled into a new land, into the land of Egypt. And the rest of Genesis 46 is an outworking of God's promise to make Jacob a great nation. Verse five, verses 5 through 7 establish that point generally, and then verses 8 through 27 accomplish the same task in greater details by listing the names of all of Jacob's descendants who are journeying with him into Egypt. The promise is being fulfilled. Now the question is, is why or how does this genealogy, how does this genealogy highlight the purpose of God, and how it plays into the larger story of Joseph. Well, Moses, who's writing this under the inspiration of God's Spirit, implies that as you're immersed into the story of Joseph and his rise to power and the way he wisely uses his power and reconciles with his brothers, now we see the larger picture that this isn't just about one family being reconciled. This isn't just about Jacob and his sons living happily ever after. This is about God accomplishing that so that this family could be made into a great nation through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's why we have it right here. So we have the resettlement. That's all I'm going to say about that. I'm going to spend the last 10 or so minutes here talking about the reunion between Joseph and his father. So we've seen revelation to Jacob in verses 1 through 4, and then a resettlement of his family in verses 5 through 27, and now number 3, and finally, we have the reunion in verses 28 through 34. Let's read that once again. He had sent Judah ahead of him. Remember, Judah is emerging as the leader, more about that in weeks to come. He sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen, the best, the best of Egypt. Verse 29, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, Jacob, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you are still alive. Now, again, just, just, to, just to bend this nail over, why isn't Moses calling him Jacob? Because he's not an individual. He's not being thought about as an individual anymore. He's being treated as a nation. 
That's why he calls him Israel again and again and again. Because this is now no longer just the story of Jacob and his family. This is the story of God's purpose to bring about the blessing of the nations through the people of Israel. And so that's what we see here. That's why he keeps referring to him as Israel. Verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Now, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, Genesis records a series of reoccurring threats that endanger the survival and purity of God's covenant line, his covenant family, the family of Abraham. And in chapters 37 through 50, in the story of Joseph, all these threats converge at once. You've got, like I've said, you've got family division, you've got violence, you've got unrighteousness, you've got intermarriage, you've got global famine. All the things that would threaten the survival of God's purpose. And he does not let it fall to the ground. He doesn't let his purpose die out because of the way he preserves the family through Joseph. And I just want us to see and appreciate here at the end all the ways in which Joseph and God's faithfulness to keep his covenant line through Joseph is preserved and all the threats are resolved. Think about this first of all. We've already mentioned it briefly, so I'm just going to mention these two quickly. First of all, you have the resolution of the family division and breakdown through the reconciliation and reunion. Instead of exacting revenge, which would have played right into the hands of Satan and ruined God's purpose, he reconciles with his family and paves the way for them to become a nation. Because if there's no reconciliation, what happens? Jacob and his family die of the famine. Wow, Siri was recording me. I had no... Now, did you all see me touch that? I don't think so. Anyway, that was weird. So that was, there was something going on there. I don't know what to make of that. All right, so you've got the family division solved. What about Genesis 38? Remember with Judah and Tamar and that whole messy situation that we preached some months back? You've got intermarriage going on and unrighteousness, and that's threatening the purity of the line, well, notice here at the end of Genesis 46 how Joseph resolves that. He's going to keep the people pure and preserve, preserve the line. Verse 32 of Genesis 46, The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their livestock and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What's your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock. From our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now you think, that's a weird statement to put there. I mean, he's talking about being a shepherd and how shepherds are abominations to the Egyptians. He's talking about the fact that they're going to be kept separate from the people of Egypt so that they can flourish as a nation. This is actually... God's wisdom and the way he brought this about because the, Egypt, the Egyptians, they would never let these abominable Jewish shepherds live here. But if they're off in the land of Goshen where they don't have to intermingle and intermix, well, that's a different thing altogether. And so that's exactly what happens. So Joseph preserves his family by settling them in Goshen. 
and shielding them from foreign cultural influence and safeguarding them against the prejudices of the Egyptians so that they are able to develop as a nation without the dangers that are posed toward them. And so God's purpose can be fulfilled. That's the, that's the point. So the point is, is that through Joseph, God is reversing the curse. And this is what's so precious about this chapter is we begin to see God working to preserve his promise. He's unraveling violence through forgiveness. He's unraveling unrighteousness through righteousness. And he's unraveling hunger through wise kingship. And this, my friends, my brothers and sisters, is the story of Jesus. And it's where we want to conclude our thoughts this morning. God is reversing the curse through Joseph. But Joseph is a figure of the way God ultimately reverses the curse. Because we're in the first chapter of the Bible here. Right? There's a lot. All this talks about what he's doing here in this very beginning. And the truth is, is that God is going to send his son into the world as a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is going to unravel the curse in the same ways that Joseph unravels the curse. First of all, instead of inflicting judgment, he gives forgiveness. And aren't you grateful that we get to celebrate that, which is a picture that our judgment's been taken And our forgiveness has been extended to us, even though we deserve a fate much worse than the sons of Jacob, who sold their brother into slavery. But our greater brother, Jesus, said, no, instead of exacting revenge, I'm going to give forgiveness. What about in the face of our unrighteousness? How does our Lord behave? He behaves righteously. He lives a perfect life, the life we can never live, and dies a death we deserve to die so that all those who will repent of sin and trust in him and pledge their lives to him in obedience are forever reconciled to him, washed clean, made new. The curse is broken. So my concluding application is this. Brothers and sisters, believe God in the dark. Believe God in the dark. Trust him when you can't even see what he's doing. There's, I mean, there's no way even Jacob understands all that's going on to, in his life right now. Like, why am I being moved to Egypt? Who knows if he ever heard what God had told his grandfather way back when that he would have to sojourn in a land that was not his own. But the point is, is, He's having to do this, and he's going here, and, he's gonna, and, and his family went through all this turmoil. And, of course, a lot of it was even the result of some of the ways he behaved in his own sin with his favoritism and things like that. But nevertheless, brothers and sisters, trust God's heart when you can't trace God's hands. You don't know what's going on. You can't see two steps in front of you. You're not meant to. You're not meant to. Psalm 23, that great precious psalm that so many of us know. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Right? 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why do you have to say that kind of stuff to yourself? Because sometimes life doesn't make sense. You have to say, no, God's mercy is ruling this. No, even though I'm walking through this and the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to be afraid. Why do we have to be promised in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 if, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain? Because it feels like it a lot of times. Life just feels vain. But God says, it's not in vain. I'm working. Trust me. My promises are often not fulfilled in the way you expect. Jacob couldn't have envisioned that the fulfillment of God's promises would mean he'd be taken away from the promised land for several centuries because of a famine, only to be brought back as a fully formed nation. But that's what God did. That's the way God chose to fulfill it. So brothers and sisters, let's let God write our script. Okay? You don't try to write your script for your life. You don't try to say, this is the way it's got to be. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not following God. You know how many people sign off, just check out, don't want anything part of it, part of God, because they don't want to give up control of their life. They want to determine how they're remembered. What an awful way to live. If you live so that you want so badly for people to remember you, you will be eternally forgotten. But if you will live to dissolve yourself in the story of God and say, God, do with my life whatever you want to do with it. I want to just live every day faithfully honoring you. But you write it the way you want to write it. You will have the best imaginable story you could ever imagine. Because it's the story God is writing. And so let's let God write our story, brothers and sisters. Let's let him do what he wants to do with our lives, knowing that Ultimately, it's part of this great story. We're tied into this story. You know, if we extend it, if you're a believer here this morning, if you, you know, that's not just a list of names. Those are your family members. Say, how can that be? Because if you're in union with Jesus Christ, you're in union with the line and family of Jesus Christ. And Genesis 46 introduces us to his family. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to consider this seemingly insignificant chapter in your word, which when we step back from it, we see just how amazing it is that you are working out and fulfilling your purpose and accomplishing all that you had planned to do in the very beginning in really strange ways to us sometimes, but perfect ways to you. We thank you always for your thoughts. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. We pray that we would trust you. That just as Jacob exercised some faith in leaving the promised land to go into Egypt, that just as Joseph exercised faith to forgive his brothers, that just as, as he exercised faith in interpreting those dreams no matter what would happen to him, just as Reuben exercised faith in saying that we will make sure that Benjamin's brought back, just as Judah exercised faith as we see him saying, kill me if I don't bring him back. 
Lord, thank you for all these glimpses that we see of the ways in which you are working out your purpose and causing your people to trust in you. Make us to do that. Help us to trust your heart when we can't trace your hands, knowing that your promises are always being fulfilled and your purposes are always good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.